All right. Good morning, everybody. Glad to see everybody here and everybody chatting and enjoying being with each other. That's wonderful. So last week, we left off with basically question 15. I'm going to read these few verses here to get us started. Now, this is in James chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 18 through 26. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so with that, we want to look at, continue looking at our questions here. And question number 15, what example does James use next to show the futility of faith only, of those who would just believe? The devil himself believes and trembles. Right. The demons, the demons believe. They know there is a God, but how do they act? What do they do? They they. They do what they want, right? They act for their own selfishness, right? So why do they tremble? Why do they shudder? Some things say shudder instead of tremble, but same difference. Yes? Because they disobey. They don't obey. They do the opposite, and they disobey. Right, because they disobey. Okay. What was you going to say, Eddie? I was going to say because they know right and wrong, and know who God is, they don't live for him. So it scares them to know the power. Right, it scares them to know the power of God because they know they're living wrong. Did you have something, Matt? I was going to say the power. They they recognize they recognize God is true and powerful, so they're afraid, but yet they're still doing the wrong thing. Right, they recognize God as true as the true God as powerful, but they're still doing the wrong things. Right? Imagine, I, I imagine that they're thinking you're the enemy of God, and you show up at judgment. Yeah, you're going to be scared. You're going to be terrified. So I, I, that's how I think of that or see that. Just, just a thought. All right. So if we look at, yes, I'm sorry. Many people today that will say, "Oh, well, I believe there's God," but they don't do, they don't live their life according to what they believe. God and His Word. Right. There are there are those who say, who give lip service to the faith, who believe in God, but they don't actually live it out. They don't really act it out. And that is a similar state to be in. 
Say yes. And when people say that, they don't have any uh, scriptures to justify what they're saying because they're saying, "I feel, I want. This is the way I feel." The scriptures teach, you know, and they're not really looking at the scriptures at all. That happens too. That people are not really looking at the scriptures. They're going by what they feel and what they think and what they maybe what they've heard others say. You know, they're they're not really going by the scriptures themselves, which is what we should be going by. Does anyone have anything else on that? All right. So, question sixteen then: How was Abraham justified? We'll just take the first part. How was he justified? By his works. By his works, right? So, and when, that, that, that takes us to the next part. So, when was he justified? When he did what God asked him to do. Not off in the sun, on the altar. When he did what God asked him to do, what God said to do, when he did that, that's when he was justified by offering Isaac on the altar because he believed that even if he sacrificed Isaac, that God could raise him back up. He believed that, you know, everything would go accordingly. He believed and trusted in God. That's what really counts. Does anyone have anything else on that? Okay. So, basically, my thought on that was that, you know, this is one of those things where faith requires action, right? I mean, Abraham had to do something, right? God had put something before him to do, so he had to do it. And that's the way our faith works always. We have things before us that we should be doing, and we have to do those things. That's a part of our faith. Part of our faith is obedience. Yes, obedience, right. And it does, does go back to obedience because we're doing what God has told us to do in his word, right? So yes, it does go back to obedience, yes. It was kind of like God was saying to Abraham, you say you believe in me, you say that you trust me, prove it. Well, yeah, okay. You, you say you believe in me, that you trust me, then do this, right? So that is kind of a prove it moment. And sometimes, just like with Abraham, that's a really a very good example as far as with Abraham goes. Sometimes it's not something we necessarily want to do, that we're comfortable doing, and it's not something that comes naturally. It is not natural to take your son and offer him up like that. That's just not a normal, natural thing. So sometimes the things we're asked to do are... Again, uncomfortable. They're out of our comfort zone. They're not necessarily what we want to do. There's many times we want to do something because we're selfish. But we have to have self-control and we have to look at God's word and understand that he asks us and commands us not to do these things. And we have to prove our faith and obedience to him by, you know, not doing what we want. Right. Our faith and obedience needs to be to him and not doing what we want, but doing what God wants, what he's telling us he wants us to do. He, he didn't have to actually do the act that he was commanded to do. He said be willing to do it. Right. Well, he didn't go through with it. Why? Because God said, stop. Yeah, he stopped it. That's enough. He 
He was going to do it, though, right? I mean, he was going to do it, but God said, nope, stop, that's good. He proved it, and once he proved it, that was that was all. That was all that was necessary. Then God provided the sacrifice there. If you remember, there was a ram that was suddenly there and available. I think it was a ram, wasn't it? Okay. <laughs> I said that, and then I thought, was it a ram? Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, if we look at... Question 17, what was the relation between Abraham's faith and works? It kind of goes with what we're talking about. They were working together, right? Right? Faith was working together with his works. Yes? This is kind of the key to the whole thing. I mean, true faith is a faith that works, and that's just a faith that agrees with facts, but a faith, faith that actually acts upon that. Right. True faith, like he said, is a faith that works. It actually does something. You actually, it actually promotes you doing something. You, you will take action based on that faith. It also says by works, his faith was made perfect. And that, in this sense, again, perfect, it means mature and complete. And this is how, you know, by doing these things, doing what God has told us, this is how we exercise our faith. It's how we grow our faith. And uh, growth and maturity in faith is mentioned in the epistles, and it's just like, if you imagine like a muscle in your body, the more you do these things, the more your faith will grow. Just like the more you exercise a muscle, the more it will grow. The less you do something, if you break an arm and your arm has to be immobilized for months, what do the muscles do when you're not doing anything with them? They, they atrophy. And so when you're not using your faith, when you're not actually doing something, it atrophies. Yes, Matt? There's some sort of interesting thing this verse, these verses, and then what Paul wrote in Galatians and Romans about quoting the same passage from Genesis 15 here, but uh, you know, people like Martin Luther have, have actually looked down on the book of James, and he's quoted as saying it's a it's an epistle of straw, meaning like worthless, and because he did he almost didn't want to put it in his translation, he put it at the end or something <laughs> after. Oh, okay. Because he, he, he looked at this as sort of contradicting what Paul said, you know, you're saved by faith apart from works. But of course, the context in Romans and in Galatians where Paul's writing, he's talking about the works of the law of Moses. Right. So apart from the works of the law of circumcision and all that stuff. But but what James is talking about is just obeying God and doing, doing good things and, and, and that sort of thing. So it's not really the same idea of works that's under consideration in those two passages. Right, right. And I read a little bit about that with Martin Luther not really seeming to like James very much. But uh, yeah, there's a difference in that I also felt that Paul is really talking about being saved by grace, that initial salvation. And James is really talking about how we live our lives and maintain our salvation. And I feel like that's a that's a different distinction as well, if that makes sense. Yeah. And part of the point 
he makes in, I forget Romans or Galatians or both, was, was that uh, Abraham had been justified before he was circumcised. Because if you look at the timeline of how that yeah. all happened, he was did all this to please God and was considered faithful before he was circumcised. And so circumcision, that's one of those, ultimately becomes part of the law of Moses. He, he was justified apart from doing all that law of Moses. All right, because Abraham was even before the law, so he was justified even before the whole law of Moses and all of that. Yes, so, yeah, that's that's all good points, too, if we think about that. And then. Does anybody have anything else on that? All right. So, question 18 what two things were the results of Abraham's works? And he's looking for two things specifically. You can read it in verse 23, right? Because the scriptures were fulfilled, which uh, said Abraham believed God, and it was accounted them for righteousness, right? And then also, he was called the friend of God. Which that always, I don't know, that always strikes me particularly interesting. If we, if we look at that and think about that being a friend of God, because we believe him and follow him. And we do what he says. Yep, do what he says, right. It comes back to obedience again, comes back to obeying God and following him um, and believing believing him and doing what he says. And again, you know, how do we know that Abraham believed God? By the action he took. Yep, he took the action. And that's, that's how we know that Abraham believed God. It's because he did take the action that he did. So if we look at question 19, what point did the example of Abraham illustrate? Well, if we look at verse 24, It says, uh, James says, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. And he means by both of them, not just one, though I don't know that you would really have works without faith anyway. But uh, that's the idea in that verse there. Justified, meaning vindicated, set free, declared righteous, in a correct relationship with God, which is probably the most important meaning to me. So our works are, are, are the proof of our faith and our salvation. And if you think about it, how can the world, how can anyone see a good example if we do not have these works, if we do not do these things? Not that we want to brag or proclaim ourselves, but just that we want to have that good example and show that. So that when they do ask, we can give 
glory to God and, and praise him for that. So if we look at question 20, what final example does James appeal to? Rahab, right. Yep, he appeals to Rahab, he says, where he makes the comparison. Appeal to, I don't know, but uh, makes the comparison again. Rahab the harlot who was justified when uh, she hid the spies, right? Yes. I think the faith she had was what they told her they were going to do if she did it. That they would save her and her family blood. Right. So she had faith that they were going to do that, and so she did the work. She believed when they said that they would spare her and her family, you know, under those conditions. Remember, there were certain conditions they had to be, like, within her house, and, you know, they had to be there. But within those conditions, she, she believed that they would save her family, and then she acted upon that, again, taking an action based on her belief. So, Yes? I kind of think back to this context here, verses 15 and 16, where this situation that's proposed about someone who needs help, poorly clothed, and they need food, and you're just like, oh, good luck with that, be warm and chill, I, I wish you well, but you don't help them with the things they need. That's that's kind of the point with her, is that they needed help. And she didn't just say, well, I hope you win <laughs> and save me when you win. But no, she, she actually did the work. Well, that's true, too. That's a good comparison. So just like with someone who's in need, instead of just, you know, saying, well, you know, be warm and be filled and good luck to you, you know, uh, when they were in need, to be kept from, you know, the, the guards or whatever, when they were in need to be hidden, she helped them. She actually did something worthwhile and useful to help them and save them. So that's a good point, a good comparison. She didn't just say, well, good luck to you. So if we look at question 21 then, what is James' conclusion regarding faith and works? And you can read it. You can read it there in verse twenty-six. Right. We've got to add something to our faith. He says, "As the body without the spirit is dead, mm -hmm. so faith without works is dead." Right. So if we relate this back, you can relate this back to me, to my mind, I always think of the guy, well, the guy, I think of the parable of the talents, and I always think about the one guy who's given the one talent, and he just buries it in the ground. He doesn't do anything with it. He doesn't make any attempt to do anything with it. And so, again, you know, it's kind of, maybe he was scared, he was scared and afraid to put that money at risk, but... Because he didn't do anything with it, it didn't grow. And as we saw, the, his master was not pleased, right? So God gives us all these blessings, all these things, gives us our faith, and we are to do something with it. Because it can't grow if we don't do anything with it. Yes? It just occurred to me, looking back at verse 24, that it says, it's just kind of the same point. And you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And that phrase, faith alone, is one of those sort of mantras or whatever, one of those 
those things that people say and you know the reformed Protestant Reformation and all that. Uh, Christ alone and Scripture alone, all these different things. Faith alone is one of those tenets that they put on there. But the only time in the Bible that it ever says faith alone, it says not by faith alone. In fact, if we're going to follow the Scriptures, we better pay attention to that. Right, right. Okay, so yeah, this is the only time it's said by faith alone. Okay, and it's really not by faith alone that we are justified in a right standing. And you have to realize that means that we are in a right standing with God. To be in a right standing with God, we have to, we can't just do that by faith alone, by lip service, by word of mouth. We have to do more. A yes. lot of our religious world preaches today, faith alone will save us. But God's word says faith and baptism will save us. So there's an action there with that faith. There is even an action there with salvation where you get yeah, baptized. Now that's yeah. that's true. I, I do believe in that instance you do have your faith is really that gift from God. Yeah. And then you take that action. Take the action even then there is an action. So right. Did you have something? Well, certainly I wouldn't disagree that baptism is necessary for salvation. Absolutely. But it's also true that every time you see baptism talked about, it's something done to us. Yes. Repent and be baptized. Don't repent and baptize yourself. Right. So it's actually <laughs> yeah. something we submit to. Right. So it's, not, it's not even a work that we do. It's something we submit to. Certainly there's plenty of works we need to do. We need to feed the poor and live mm -hmm. holy lives and all these things. It's kind of interesting. So I'm not sure if See, uh, works here would really correlate to baptism. No, really to but it is an action. But but yeah. being but but our action in that instance, because you're you're, I think you're dead on. We are submitting again, being obedient to what the Word of God says, and we're submitting to be baptized. So we're our action is the submission to it, not really, not really, because <laughs> you're not we're not baptizing ourselves. That's true. Yeah. So. Yes. Yes. Yeah. He believes and is baptized will be saved. Right. Yeah. So there is an action there. It is an action. It's just but that it's, we're our action is submitting to yes. the obedience of God and being baptized, and that's yeah. Yes. Well, yes, that we do that as well. Because you, I, I can't imagine you would even come forward to be baptized or anything without feeling that and, and calling on the Lord to be saved. Yeah. Does anybody have anything else on this before we continue? Yes. And it reminds me of Romans 5, 10, that talks about um, our friendship with God is being restored, that Jesus died for us even while we were enemies of his. So part of the change that happens in, in putting us in the right relationship with God is we do sort of have that friendship like Abraham. Right. When we're in, when we're in this correct relationship with God, then we can also be counted as friends of God. We're, 
children of God as well, but, but we can also be counted as friends of God. Now, I was looking for 510. Yeah, so for if, if while Romans 510, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled will we be saved by his life? Well, being reconciled is being putting us back in that correct relationship with God again. The relationship that God wants us to have with him. That's why he wanted to be in the center of the camp back in with the Israelites. He wanted to be, he wanted to be there. He wants to be a part of our lives. It's always that way. He wants to be the part of our lives. Let's put it that way. Maybe that's more correct. Even worshiping God requires action. Yes. I agree. Yes, worshiping. Worship is an action, and worship, I mean, just singing God's praises even is an action of faith. It is. All of that is, yeah. Because we're proclaiming our faith, right? I mean, we wouldn't bother if we didn't believe. We're acting upon our belief by worshiping. Yes, we're acting upon our belief by worshiping, yes. And, yeah. By worshiping, by praying, all those things. Again, I don't think we would bother if we didn't believe, right? So if we look at the next, the next thing we need to look at really is chapter 3, right? Unless anybody had anything else, I'm sorry. I was moving us on. Okay. Uh, if we look at chapter 3, there's basically, again... Uh, They've kind of broken this out into two major parts, which is, I think, pretty accurate here if you look at chapter 3. The two main parts being the, uh, let me scroll down here. Oh, I thought I had that. Well, I probably have it on my paper here. Being that the first, the first part of the chapter being about, you know, true religion and controlling the tongue because the tongue is so important, controlling our speech, controlling what we say. And then the second, the second part of the chapter being about uh, displaying heavenly wisdom as opposed to earthly wisdom. And that's really the main, the main points of this chapter. That's really question one. Uh, true religion controlling the tongue in the first part, and then the second part, True religion displaying heavenly wisdom. So we'll read the... I know we're kind of short on time. I'm going to read the first few verses of this, and then we'll probably end it for today, and we'll, we'll start over again next week. But James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. My brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect, and again, think of that as a mature or complete man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. 
Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, the course of our lives. And it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our God and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the similitude or the likeness of God. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. So we do have time. So we'll do uh, question number one here. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Question number two. We kind of hit the main points. So why does James caution against many becoming teachers? Because when you teach, you're not just responsible for yourself, but for those that you are teaching. So you're held accountable for what you're teaching them. Right. Okay. So it's a greater responsibility because you're... You're being held accountable for what you're teaching others, right? And uh, also because you will receive a stricter judgment, right? So why would that be? I mean, Pat has said partly, but uh, but why? Why would that be? Or at least I believe that's part of the the answer to why. Yes. You're just astray, and you're, and you're teaching of yourself, I guess, right? You're only affecting yourself, but if you're then wrong in your understanding of the scriptures, and you're teaching that to tons of people, then you're leading all of them astray. And so there's a bigger consequence. I mean, you're, you're causing more calamity to lots of people, and so with logic would follow that there's a stricter judgment for that. Right, because we would be causing more calamity or more trouble for other people by by incorrectly teaching the wrong things, right? Whereas if by ourselves, we're really not hurting others, we would just be hurting ourselves. So I think part of it, the way I was thinking of it, it goes in line with that, is, is so we would not be uh, teaching like the Pharisees were teaching. You know, they were teaching the ideas of men as if that was the law, and they were teaching incorrectly and missing the, the important weighty matters that uh, Jesus talked to them about. So, all right, so that, let, does anyone have anything on that before we close here? I'm sorry. All right, so I'm gonna end it there and we'll pick up with question number three next week. Thank you for your time and your attention.